0: Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfomensa. And on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to a brand new episode of Danny Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfomensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you'll come back for future episodes after you love this one. And I'm guaranteeing that you'll love it because we have some great people coming on today. So before we get to the main event... If you're on YouTube, please make sure you hit that red subscribe button so you can get future notifications on new episodes of the podcast. Also, if you're tuning in from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other audio streaming platforms, be sure to subscribe there as well. We appreciate all the support from our viewers and listeners, always. And then if you are interested in contributing monetarily, to the growth of the podcast, uh, please make sure you go to either Cash App or Venmo. Um, if you are on Cash App, our handle is Money Sign ID Talk for Ed, and if you are on Venmo, our handle is at kwamesm. And then, of course, to check out past episodes of the podcast, you can go to our YouTube channel, which is under my name, Kwame Safra Or you can go to our official website at IdentityTalkForEducators.com. Thank you, as always, for the support, people. So, um, so much has gone on over the past week or two. Uh, We've seen a lot of new movies come out, so there's been a lot of uh, controversy around you know, The Little Mermaid, the fact that you have a black actress playing the role of Ariel. So if people remember the original Little Mermaid, it was a white mermaid who was the main character in that classic, as we all remember. And then um, just a few days ago, maybe a week ago, The Woman King... Uh, came out, which is basically a historical, fictional reimagining of the the homi tribe um, in in Africa, and is featuring an all black woman cast, which is. Unprecedented even in 2022. So, why do I mention these two movies in particular? Because there's been so much controversy around them. But the educator in me wants to talk about why those movies are important. And it's because they serve as counter narratives for not just our Black girls who are going to our schools, but also Black people in general. You know, we gain inspiration from watching these movies because it lets us know that. We could be seen in these movies. And that's the case for any culture, whether we're talking about Latinx community, whether we're talking about the indigenous community, uh, Asian Pacific Islander community. There are counter narratives in every single race whose stories uh, need to be shared to the public. And we want to make sure that we touch on this today the importance of counter narratives in the K 12 classroom. And to help us break that down and really deep dive into it, I have two good friends of mine who are going to come on and share their expertise on why counter narratives are important um, in the classroom um, as a way to inspire and motivate our historically marginalized children who are in front of us. So I want to bring on, my good friends, Christopher Clyde Green and Estelle Fomedru to the podcast to talk with us about counter narratives and how we can do more in our classrooms to present those to children. So let me bring on Estelle and Chris and we can get this conversation started. Hey, hey.
1: Hey, Kwame.
2: Hi, Kwame. How are you? I'm doing well. How are y'all doing?
1: Doing great. Really excited to be on the show.
2: Yeah. yeah, looking forward
0: to it. Yeah, listen, I know we've been trying to do this for the past few months. We've been playing phone tag and trying to get <laughs> schedules aligned, but I'm finally glad that we're able to agree on a time and and finally be here to have this important conversation. It's always good to be in company with y'all. So so thank y'all for coming on.
1: Thank you so much Pleasure. for about inviting us.
0: Yeah. So before we jump into this important conversation. I always want to give my guests an opportunity to just share how they came into the education field and just a little bit about themselves. So we'll go with newlywed first. So Estelle, <laughs> we'll let you go ahead and start it off.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Kwame. So hi, everyone. Um, my name is Estelle Bunya So I am a Pan-African woman uh, from Cameroon, uh, grew up all over West Africa, lived in different African countries, and um, I came to the education field from, a, from this determination to drive change on the continent, and seeing how education had been a powerful force for opportunities in my life, I just wanted to be involved in that field to be able to provide the same, uh, or I mean, all kinds of opportunities for other African children and just children of the world.
0: All right, cool. All right, Chris, how about okay. you?
2: Either, brother? Okay, sure, sure. I'll try a little bit of introduction about myself. So um, basically, I'm a, primarily a literature teacher, and I love literature and arts at school. But my school was very rigid, right? Um, but literature was about the personal expression and about the human condition. And so I really enjoyed being part of that, that setup, really. And um, so a little bit of background about myself about how I got into teaching was I was initially doing acting actually and I did a theatre and education production. Uh, that means uh, actors come to school and I do a little bit of uh, acting performances for students and such and I really enjoyed that tour and that encouraged me to do a PGCE which is a Graduate Diploma in Education in the UK. Uh, and I realised actually it was more enriching Uh, more of a rich experience than, I don't know, the prospect of waiting tables and then auditioning for stereotypical roles that I'd be presented with. And then many of the skills that I found in teaching were the same that were in acting. And uh, as I said, my school was was kind of rigid. So I wanted to try and find a way of uh, helping my students I had in front of me explore the world beyond the four walls that they they were in. That's what keeps me going, really, as a teacher. All right,
0: cool. And I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, Chris, because as I was doing the research, I was like, oh, the brother been acting. Okay. You <laughs> got an IMDB page. That's something.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> 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 yeah,
0: but we'll we'll get more into films and everything in a second because that's a major part of this conversation, but still focused on your childhood. So you, know, you all had primary and secondary schooling growing up in your respective spaces. And I just want to know, what were some of those struggles, if any, that you had to go through as you were embracing your identity and trying to show up as your authentic self within your respective school spaces where you were? Uh, I'll like go? go
2: first.
1: Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah. So for me, um, so I went to school in Chad, in Guinea, and in Mali. So uh, that was secondary and well primary and secondary education. So I went to French um, French schools abroad. So it's just uh, French, following the French curriculum, the national French curriculum, um, and those were a little bit the equivalent of international schools. Um, in the the way that most of the expats uh, send their children there and most of the upper class um, locals also send their children there. In that regard, it was a little bit like an international school. But uh, strangely, I didn't have, I never met Cameroonians at the school. So I was the only Cameroonian. And so I had a big issue with uh, language because In at the school, there were a lot of um, locals. So the local language, whether, for example, in Mali, Bambara, was really spoken. There was no one that spoke a language that sounded like my parents' language. And so I was always, um, I felt really embarrassed a little bit because of the comments that I got, like from my peers. They'll be like, your language sounds so strange. And so it made me really just, you know, go back into my my little bubble and said, okay, you know, I'll leave this out of school. And on top of that, uh, the language was already rejected by the school in itself, because when I was younger, um, the the French schools told my parents to not speak uh, my local language at home so that I wouldn't have issues learning French. And so already there was a fracture there because I didn't get as much exposure to my native language as I should have. And on top of it, growing up in these spaces with friends really looking at my language in a very weird way, that really affected how I interacted with with that part of my identity.
2: Yeah, I can definitely relate. Yeah, how about you, Chris? There's a lot of things, a lot of patterns that are coming up from my experience and from the words that you were saying there too. I might say again that my school was quite a rigid school like i went to a grammar school in in england and it was about uniforms and only a few students of a uh, visual minority whatever that means uh, i was the only student of a jamaican heritage uh, and so it was around the time i'm maybe showing my age here where a few um like jamaican stereotypes and jokes cropped up cool runnings so, and other things like this and then we also had the the oddly enough the sexualization of, of of men of Jamaican heritage of Afro heritage with Linford Christie winning the 100 meters and the only thing that certain even teachers could talk about was the whole idea of lunchbox you know the, the clothes he was wearing it's just crazy and they were saying that in front of like 14 year old kids and, and then I often found that because I was one of the Uh, only visual minorities as I say that I kind of stood out and so I was often compared to other students who were also like me in terms of my visual anyway and they also associated that with my behavior too that we'd all get clumped together in a sense and uh, oddly enough I was compared to famous people due to my ethnicity by all sorts of people you know they'd say oh you look like this guy you look like that guy um Sometimes not even the correct one, you know, not even correct culture. You know, as long as he was dark skinned, it was enough. But so there was I guess those positives and negatives of being like uh, the only one or two of you within the school um, or what it felt like. But um, at times, like, like I was going to say, there was a form, there was a part of a, the, there was some embarrassment, um, like Estelle said, uh, at times to show my non-British vibe, Most teenagers want to conform, correct? So I was always putting on the side that I had, that I could be most connected to with all my friends. Um, And I only realized that now, retrospectively, I realized that I was doing this sort of mask. And um, there are fewer opportunities at my school, very few opportunities to discuss or explore identity and or diverse cultures. I mean, we had people within our school from all sorts of different cultures. It was in London, so we had Sikhs, Hindus, we had Muslims, we had people from all sorts of different backgrounds. But we had one or two events, you know, like Diwali here, and, uh, and a celebration here. But then it was very, very tip of the iceberg. nothing else. Oh, why do they celebrate Diwali? Why are there five Ks in, 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 in Sikhism, for example? Um, so yeah, a few opportunities to discuss or explore identity or diverse cultures that were in our school, um, particularly in extracurricular activities. There like was zero there, really. And, uh, and then, for example, in STEM and human humanities subjects, I don't think we even learned anything beyond uh, Eurocentric ideas and Eurocentric teachings,
0: you know. Yeah, I think we can all agree that we had that similar experience just being exposed to whitewash curriculum.
1: Mm, Absolutely.
0: But I'm interested in knowing from from both of you because we are talking about counter narratives. And I want to circle back to you, Chris, because being an actor, I would assume that part of your motivation for acting was to portray characters that you may not have seen when you were younger. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there was ever a time, and this is for both of y'all, but starting with Chris, was there ever a time when you read a book or watched a film and you thought to yourself, okay, the main protagonist or just any character in that film or book is someone that I could see myself in.
2: Uh for me, not directly. And that was the reason why I wanted to get into acting. But my teachers often tried to pin a character onto me. There were so many characters that I could connect to um, emotionally, perhaps, or through the, their their feelings or through the experiences they're going through, from Holden Caulfield to Othello. But there was one teacher, actually one teacher was obsessed with asking me to read as Othello. And what I felt about Othello's situation, Othello is a... Uh, more in in Shakespeare's Othello, and um, I found that very strange. And I loved literature because it told me about the world, which in turn told me about myself. But I remember watching a film. My dad. I remember watching a film called Hollywood Shuffle, and it was uh, uh-huh, classic, a, right? Very funny, and it's about a guy auditioning in America. He go into a room, and everyone would look like him, and audition for the same role and i said to my dad like i'm i'm gonna, i'm going to be an actor but i'm going to i'm going to change that i'm going to change that and there were times where it was working and then there were t- there it would work 20% of the time 80 percent of the time you were still in that room with the same people who look like you playing the same role and that can be really really quite psychologically damaging and you you got to try and create your own counter narratives by getting down into the background behind the scenes and writing and creating and producing And one of those ways of doing that, I think the seed, the foundation of that is through teaching people that um, not all black guys are this or not all Indian women are that or not all white men are this. And I think that's what got me into teaching more. That's when I was like, I think I'm I'm starting too far ahead if I'm just going to do acting. I actually need to go back to where people get these ideas from, where these Uh stereotypes are derived from. And then we can actually then create something that's actually positive for everyone. Yeah, for sure.
1: I, I would say that um, I definitely, yeah, I, I can definitely relate, you know, although I, I did all my K-12 schooling in Africa and you could think, you know, with all the great authors that are there and filmmakers that I would have been Sort of exposed to that at school, uh, but I went to, like I said, I went to a French, to a French school, and um, it's. Um, I didn't. I didn't see in the curriculum any, yeah, any character that I related to. I mean, we had really classic French literature, which is great, uh, but it's just, I, yeah, I didn't relate. Um, I think I related, like Chris said, emotionally. Um, But not, you know, directly. But thankfully, I was also part of the drama club and I was part of a lot of different extracurricular activities that had to do with acting and singing. And there we got to actually create a lot of our own plays. Um, Mm -hmm. I had um, teachers and um, yeah, those the, the leaders of those activities, they were so out of the status quo. They were progressists. I mean, they were reading, they were making us read like Che Guevara and things like that. Um, and so there we had the opportunity to just expand our mind, expand our visions and just build people that looked like us and that were so culturally diverse and mixed up within the same, within your same personality. I mean, you have so many cultures. That was more our reality, but the school didn't meet that.
0: Uh, with the educational material, yeah, I hear that. So you know, we're sitting here talking about counter narratives, and I have to remind myself that there may be people within our listening and viewing audience who may have who are hearing this term for the first time. So of course, Identity Talk for Educators Live is also an educational podcast where we're trying to educate our teachers and others. You know about what these terms are and how they manifest themselves in the classrooms and beyond. So, I think this will be a good time for us to formally define what counter narratives are. Number one, and how do they show up in our classrooms?
1: Mm-hmm. So. All right. Yeah i'll I'll start us off. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'll define it in the way that I really understand it. Of course, I'm. You know, you can go online and see a lot of very academic definitions, but in really how I embrace counter narratives for me, first of all, it's a powerful pedagogical tool to reestablish the um, humanity and just some some form of justice within um, the classroom. And what I mean by this is that counter-narratives are a way to tell stories, tell the stories that are rarely heard, and tell stories that are told by the people who are generally observed. Um, So it sort of um, empowers students within the classrooms to, to see themselves, to see themselves portrayed in so many different ways, and to see themselves portrayed by people who have similarities with them in terms of their background. Um, and um, what's also interesting to 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 point out is the fact that, um, well, what we're speaking of counter narratives, um, there's also this word that is out there, which is dominant narratives. And it sort of comes, so dominant narratives are those stories that are prevalent in our curriculums, I would say in, the western curriculum but really international school curriculums and just actually all curriculums that have come into contact with colonialism in a way um and so basically counter narratives are there to re-establish also the power and the voice of indigenous communities and expose different paradigms so for me it's a way of re-establishing justice be and and enhancing the intellectual potential of students also because you're allowed to see things differently, not just within the the prisms of Western thought, for example, because in school you're asked to be critical, uh, but you're critical within, you know, like you're just okay. three different authors like how do they see? I don't know. uh, justice or have but you know you're not really allowed to be very critical I mean I always found myself so so constrained like you just have to pick something so the teacher is happy but so at least what counter narratives um offer is just it broadens the spectrum of of ways of thinking of worldviews of paradigms um yeah I'll stop there <laughs> Oh my well.
2: yeah. god. Yeah. yeah, it was great. There's a lot to pick up there from absolutely. And the whole idea of the mirrors aspect I really liked as well. I'd like to think that it's not just a reflection. It's actually we're going through a hall of mirrors, as you were saying. So it's a uh, different contort contortions of ourselves and we're discovering different parts of ourselves and different parts of the world through this hall of mirrors and who knows maybe we step into that mirror like Alice in the Looking Glass for example and I like the idea of uh, this destruction of voyeurism because uh, a lot of the, of the texts are presented from uh, one vantage point and that is very much a Eurocentric vantage point for a lot of the curricula that we're being taught. When I talk about texts in terms of literature, but actually this happens within STEM and humanities subjects too, from historical uh, essays and from mathematics as well. How are we being taught about the maths of Islam or the maths of uh, the Far East in comparison to the ancient Greek maths or Western maths? Um, and my, I guess my perspective is uh, that these counter-narratives are what um, we could call uh, people, I would say, replying to the to, uh, to, colonialism in in a sense but it's not always like a conversation Mm. as well. Um, I think it should be about people actually having their own voice and having their own monologue finally and their own soliloquy even because uh, that one voice has been discussed and has said a lot of stuff for over many years. Um, To counter-narratives about people who are not usually written into the dominant discourse as Estelle said, uh, particularly within international education which is dominated by Eurocentric ideas because The majority of the people who produce the curricula are probably from the same type of schooling. Um, We should probably do away with the counter aspect, I think, Um, hopefully in the end, because we shouldn't be able to be, we shouldn't be thinking we're fighting. In a sense, we're developing narratives. So, as many vantage points are taken account of and are respected, in a way, are full of stories appreciated and told in that sense. And as Estelle said, it develops our critical thinking and promotes diversity, which actually enables and innovates companies, schools, you name it. So that is what counter-narratives are right now. But let's just say we're developing narratives so there are as many vantage points for us to develop ourselves. That's my take.
0: And thank you, both of you, because I agree with everything you're saying but there's some folks who are probably wondering, well, how do I present these counter narratives to my students, particularly students who are coming from historically marginalized communities? So what would that look like for me as a teacher who has students coming from those communities in the classroom?
2: So I would say maybe um, embrace student voice. We I mean, Ask them, um, old texts do work uh we often think that we need to refresh and look at different types of texts perhaps these eurocentric texts or these old classic texts that have been taught for years might might be a good idea to look at them from a different perspective or a different angle maybe ask the students to bring in their own texts their own books if you have the opportunity if you're not tied to a curriculum but right. Don't think of it as a straight mirror, as I said, and rather a hall of mirrors with different contortions. And it allows the students to see themselves differently, but also see themselves in others. Um, works that help to encourage interpersonal skills will be very good throughout all the curriculum. And I think that you could do it through developing inclusive practices. That could be having someone coming into school to tell, you, to help you develop on that. Um, and just help, and teachers should be learners too. So Read professional books focused on EDI strategies, um, with an emphasis on inward uh, professional educational development rather than outward. Maybe so you might not necessarily need to invite other people, but you maybe have people within your own community who can help show themselves as well and give them a voice a bit more. Perhaps it might be a good idea to to ask perhaps a, a teacher to come into the classroom who um, is from a backgrounds or from a minority or a marginalized group and they might be able to offer a book or you can have uh, whole school initiatives for example there's one called the human library um the human library everyone opens each other up basically you go and pick someone so it could be the teacher of math or the teacher of english and you can ask them who are they you know <laughs> you can have that one conversation yeah. you speak to each other for five minutes a kind of a speed dating thing what makes me me And how can I use my identity in my classroom? Because I think a lot of people, when they think of uh, marginalised peoples, they think, oh, um," they think in very stereotypical paradigms and mindsets. And sometimes people can become defensive. But actually, if you're a teacher from Ireland and you're teaching at international school, how can you use your cultural identity within your own lesson? You've got a lot of cultural perspective that isn't just British education. You have things such as the troubles that your father could have been through. You have um, Gaelic history. You have, you know, even further back, Anglo-Saxon, runes, all these different things. And I think that a lot of people think, oh, is it just about the marginalised people? Well, you, you could be a marginalised person if you think back. If you look right. back, you know, there could be a point there where you yeah. could have been marginalised. Um, so, yeah, relearning, having humility, asking students, embracing student voice would be a very important thing for me. And um, and don't think that it's a straight mirror. Don't think it's going to be a quick answer because it's not. A, this isn't a, a tick yeah. box thing. This is a this is a, a consistent revolution, I would say. Absolutely, For
1: yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, that's absolutely that. That's that. I mean, um, I think yeah. There's definitely uh, there an idea about first, yeah, thinking about your post your posture when you come into. Uh, this idea of wanting to use curric- um, counter narratives, um, mm-hmm. because you—it's important to have open-mindedness, um, a lot of humility, and yeah, and this desire. I mean, that's when you really take that lifelong learning uh, hat and you—you you just stick it on. You don't remove it, because um, there, there there is a lot of danger when we get into the counter narrative. Uh, zone especially in terms of student well-being Um, it's important to embrace the voice you know your student's voice but you can't do that if you're not open-minded because when a student Mm -hmm. will come with you know their truth or their I mean yeah their identity um, the response from the teacher if they're not prepared um, and if they're not you know they haven't Prepare themselves to welcome counter narratives can be extremely detrimental. I mean, it can be um, detrimental be- in so many different ways. First, the the student might doubt themselves because they might think, okay, well, you know, yes, we understand that you know the the teacher is not the sage on the stage, but still, there is this sort of um, there is this dynamic where you you would trust you would. And to trust your teachers and what they say and they still hold a, a lot of authority in a way mm-hmm. um and and so what happens is that when the teacher is not ready uh the, the impact can be so detrimental it can the, the student can doubt themselves they can um feel shame if the response is you know outrightly like uh like um, defensive from the teacher and they can just, you know, never want to do it again. So it, it's it, the reason why I'm saying this is because I, I experienced this myself uh, being a student and bringing in um, just counter narratives. I mean, I wouldn't even, I, I think they're counter narratives, but they're just, just other opinions on dominant narratives uh, coming from the perspective of um, people from you know eurocentric scholars, let's say um, sure. just bringing that into the classroom uh, got me to receive a lot of backlash from uh, a teacher I remember it was in a course that was not in k twelve schooling that was in mm-hmm. a, you know at university level, but it was really bad. I mean I, I just became a civil rights defendant. I mean out of nowhere it became. The situation escalated. It was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and my friends in the classroom uh, told me that later on people were like, oh, I didn't know Estelle was so into uh, defending Black rights and stuff. I was like, that was not the point. We're talking about how education could be in- instrumentalized. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was just presenting the case study of, of the Third Republic of France. Anyway, it's a long thing, but the point is Um, It's very important to be ready to welcome the counter-narrative. So like Chris was saying, cannot just be like, okay, let me bring in a book by a Black author or Asian author and I'm ticking the box. Are you ready to really dig into the whole critical analysis of the text? Just the way, like, are you ready to just be full, to put your full, like, intellectual and emotional self into this uh, work, unpacking the work and and yeah i mean it it requires that it requires yes this sort of mindset change also
2: yeah i think that having a i think and, and having something where you have a culturally relevant curriculum is really helpful too right so your group of students will change per year right yes. so if you're creating a book or if you're teaching a, t- a text or even teaching about an artist in art for example and you're using the same artist and the same author every time to think, okay, this is going to be my uh, EDI guy. Yeah, this is going <laughs> to be my one for the Indian kids. It's it's never going to work. So what you do need is you do need to embrace that that voice in your head that says, hmm, let me have a bit of humility and ask them what they want to do. Maybe you can even have a percentage of what you teach to be prescribed for a at curriculum. And then maybe you can have a, one that's the student's choice. And then maybe you can find... Um, their Their parents as well. You ask other stakeholders beyond. Ask ask the parents what 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 they want what they want their students their children to be taught, and it might interestingly be enough very traditional things because of their schooling. But you might surprise you might be surprised as well. Um, but I think it's really important for us to to ensure that people can have the confidence to see that it's not just about a certain thing on our agenda they see on the television. It's not just about a certain thing they've seen in the zeitgeist at the moment, but actually culturally relevant teaching has been happening since forever um, in, in different spaces, for example. In, I mean, I don't know if you guys went to, to to schools on the weekend, but there are certain cultures where kids have to go to school on weekend. Yeah. Uh, the weekend. Chinese kids I knew, all they all went on weekends to learn about mm-hmm. Chinese culture. Indian kids, mm. Chinese, uh, you know, Indian culture, Jewish kids, they went on uh, a weekend, you know, to learn about their, their religion and their faith. And I think you could use that massive source of knowledge from their weekend schooling, which does still happen, and mm. bring it into the classroom. If you're learning about um, certain texts, and also cr- culturally relevant texts, they don't always have to be about trauma. They, they're all sorts of bringing books Thank that are about yeah. I mean, why not just have a, a why don't tell me about a family, for example, like, okay, Raising the Son. It's a play. There's a lot of stuff going on between that family, but there's a loving father who makes some mistakes. There's a, there's there's a loving mother, you know, and there's an, a range of emotions within that black community, within that African-American household. And that really happens. You sort of like, oh, here's a traumatic book that has this, uh, <laughs> this marginalized character in it. Or here's this character within the book that's predominantly from Eurocentric point of view. That's a marginalized guy. Like um, I'm thinking of um, of Mice and Men, for example. Uh, there's a there's a, there's a uh, a guy who works as a he works in the in the in the ranch and he's he's isolated. And he's treated terribly because he's black. And it's like, is that the only person that the kids can relate to? I mean what where are the superheroes who are black? Where is the where are the pirates who are black? You know, I mean mm, where's gosh. the swashbuckling? Where's the adventure? It it's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's
1: I adventure. would definitely actually on that note, I would definitely recommend um um to all teachers who are you know trying to incorporate counter-narratives into their practice to really start with the fun story like the the, the (laughs) fun joyful stories i mean exactly it's it's like you know focus on stories that have characters that are just doing everyday like i mean everyday life yeah yeah yeah, i mean just exciting stuff you know and uh, and it's truly important um for example me right now I'm, i'm working on developing curriculum material actually uh with my consultancy for um for teachers, specifically on Africa, and my my thing was to just start with not with slavery, not with colonialism, but like say, okay, if you're an arts teacher and you want to talk about architecture from around the world,
2: you know, Ooh. what can I
1: provide for you in terms of mm-hmm. like material? Like that's what I want. I want the beautiful, the like. So pick those stories because it just creates like a, a positive a, a self image for the child first of all. So they're happy right. that you know, we're talking about their culture. they're happy because it's a cool story and everybody else in the room is going to be really happy. I mean, when you're a young child, you know talking about trauma and a very serious um, historical advance, it's, it's important, but it's also very um, uh, emotionally it's, it's very draining and it's hard to be in that space. Um, it's hard for everybody, but especially more for, for children. So exactly. it's a good idea to start with the, with the positive stories. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely something that I would recommend.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Understand the stresses and, and traumas within the school that can, that can create that trauma too. Because once they leave your classroom, the story doesn't end there. Yeah. The other students will be asking questions.
1: And they'll yep. try and
2: use them as a font of all knowledge for everything yeah. concerned within that one community. I don't know what happened between the, you know, in the Nigerian-Biafran war. I mean, I'm just a mm-hmm. black kid from yeah. from South London. Why do I need to be the font of knowledge for this? And that can put pressure on them as well. Mix it up is what I say. Yeah. yeah. All all great points.
0: Woo! y'all just bringing this knowledge in. Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> So um, I like what was mentioned about the fact that culturally relevant text doesn't need to derive from a perspective of trauma because that's what we see quite often. So most popular Mm -hmm. example being that whenever we see black historical texts, we always start from the enslavement period. Yeah, but we don't we don't talk about like the positive things that have happened throughout history, like those Mm -hmm. narratives. So Given what we said earlier, what are some things that teachers can do to just develop a positive sense of self in their BIPOC students within the curriculum, regardless of what subject matter they're teaching, whether they're literature teachers, whether they're math, um, history, art, science teachers, what can they do within their curriculum to develop that positive sense of self in
2: students? Is it just within curriculum or could it be within their manner and, and things like this? Or- yeah.
0: All that. Yeah. We're, we're, we're accounting was- for all of that. Yep.
2: Yeah. Um, avoid cliches and stereotypes. Uh, I've got, i got an example. Um, for example, there's a, they were teaching about corruption in human geography and, um, this girl, she told me, she was, came back to me, she said, the only thing they talk about my country, yeah, every time they talk about my country, they just talk about corruption. That's all they ever talk about is corruption. And it's really interesting because, okay, maybe from a human geography perspective, there might be a lot of corruption or what the West deemed to be corruption because there are other, well, there are definite forms of corruption within the West, I'm, I'm, I'm in Switzerland right now. <laughs> and uh, it's like, avoid the cliches and the stereotypes. And for example, Equatorial Guinea could be one of the most beautiful countries, for instance. Why not talk about the, the the physical geography aspect as well as the human geography? I'm not criticising that country in terms of human geography either, but I'm saying I think that one of the things that they, that some teachers lean towards is is stereotypes and cliches. Um, so I think if you do that, that gives a positive sense of self. Um, if you don't call them out and make them the the voice of reason or the the voice standalone voice for that 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 group or what, that teaching or that lesson that can help as well. doing stuff in groups would, would be really helpful as well. Um, there's also techniques sil- silent conversation we call it where you go around the room maybe you see a, a series of photographs and there's a post-it note and the students just put their thoughts so that helps people have a more confidence um, if they are talking about something to do with their own community. Um, also you can use technology. You can go home. We're on, we're on a podcast right now. And a kid could uh, record a podcast about a historical uh, episode in their own culture. Um, mm. They could respond to the text or the literature alone in their room in a very personal way between the teacher and themselves while having to be exposed to the rest of the class. And that might be a really resourceful thing for them as well. A therapeutic thing, too.
0: Mm, I hear that. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, no, those are great. Great ideas. Definitely. Um, Yeah, I would say, like, like Chris, like Chris mentioned, dropping the the stereotypes and also um, avoiding essential, essentializing the students. So I I, what I see a lot happening, especially in international education is this thing with nationalities. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe I don't want to go into that too much, because I don't know what, what people think. But I'm just I just have this feeling from talking to students that nationality matters, but it's it's not maybe as much as before that your nationality could, I don't know. I, I just feel like there is more, I mean, there, is, there has always been more uh, to, to an individual than their nationality. Yeah, it's, it's deeper than that. And so I think that, um, you know, teachers tend to, I mean, make that generalization, I mean, that those links, between a, a specific aspect of your identity and what you think, how you act, who you are, and so on and so forth. So that I mean, on top, so it's more than just um, the student is this idea of even for a positive think like a positive aspect. Just stop making assumptions overall about um, the the students' identities within the classroom. Um, mm-hmm. And another another element that Would be very helpful on top of everything that Chris has been has said and has shared, which are absolutely like amazing ideas, to be frank. I would I would recommend um, making sure that you allow students to also grow within their identity. Um, I think that right now there there are a lot of pressures uh, on this generation, but a lot of pressure to define who they are. And I feel like from a young age, you should be able to have a lot of room. I think I'm going back again to this idea of essentialization, but is is just allowing them to have the space to develop their identity, to incorporate different cultural elements um, from what they see. So it's important. I mean, then again, yeah, it's just doing, going full circle. The exposure to, Counter narratives to a lot more of this is important because the the child is still forming their identity, still developing a, a positive sense of self. So yeah, the main thing would be yeah, stop essentializing, um, drop the stereotypes, and yeah, and open up the, the child's perspective um, mm-hmm. with ensuring yeah dignity and respect and everything that you're bringing to the classroom in terms of material. And in terms of um, just um, speakers or any any or any just intervention within the classroom,
0: yeah, right. oh, for sure. And even just adding on to that, just within the context of international education, so often we talk about our third culture kids, right? <laughs> so you have third culture kids who may have spent more time in other international countries than they have within their home country. And as a result, they've adopted either the language or even just the cultural traditions of the different countries they've, they've lived in outside of their home country. And as a result, they could feel ostracized from their own country because of their unique experience traveling and living in multiple countries. But what if we were to look at that from a positive standpoint? What if we were to look at that as a strength, an asset? Like, wow, you've you've traveled all these places. You probably yeah. multilingual. Maybe mm-hmm. you're not able to speak your, you know, your native tongue, but you're able to speak all these other languages. So I feel like counter narratives could be a place where we can affirm students like those who. Have had unique upbringings growing up
2: mm. yeah, they'd say like you're um i think uh, definitely counter what a, a British politician once said she said, if you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere or something like this mm-hmm. um, I think that's you know it's, uh, I c- that's trying to try to muster up this sort of nationalistic jingoistic nonsense, and I think it's very important for us to realize that there are no borders. Really, mm. in the end, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you don't. I don't walk over a place and see a line. Um, Chad is a square, not because Chad, the people in Chad wanted it to be a square, you know. So we need to think about these people who are in transition or in bigger transition than the rest of the world. And I think teenagers are in transition a lot of the time. I think it was very interesting with what Estelle said about allowing students to grow and to regenerate and to come into another uh, another class with a different opinion. Um, they're constantly going to be in this way of this revolution of changing and think about themselves, whether it be sexuality, whether it be a, a cultural identity. You know, you've got kids who dress differently on different days, um, mm-hmm. who speak different languages to their parents, who speak different languages to their friends, who speak. Different, you know. We, I mean, we've all code-switched before, right? Oh, Had yeah. to code-switch for your parents, to, mm. to, your, to your friends, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. So, I think what you were saying there, in terms of counter-narratives, it really does hey. allow students from an international background, absolutely, to realise that they're not a third culture kid; they're a cultural kid. Thank you. They're full of culture, mm-hmm. and. They've got the literature, the language, yeah. but then also it helps. They've gone deeper into culture where they're able to <laughs> b- transition and bounce into different courtesies and manners from different countries to be friends with different people. They probably built a lot of leadership skills from having to deal with different different kinds of people. They've learned to be fair and to be just because they've had to deal with different conversations and different cultural clashes uh, They've had to deal with different religions, different opinions. So I think for a, a student to have a reading and calendar narrative who is a student who's a quote-unquote third-culture kid, it's just enriching their culture and then bring them deeper into that sort of cultural iceberg, as it were. So I think it's a really great point. Yeah, hmm. um, for sure.
0: And I think that's how we need to view it. We need to view it as capital.
2: We need to view it. Yeah
0: that as assets to who a person is because so often we get so caught up in just having young people stay within whatever margin we perceive them to be in, in terms of identity. And as a result, that's where the marginalization comes in. And we're not open-minded enough to say, okay, why why can't this person be fluent in this language? Why can't they embrace these traditions that may be outside of the tradition that you believe they should be celebrating? You know?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, th- there was something that was actually really great. So I've been saying a lot of negative things about the French school. So what I can say is that I have a sister who's 10 years younger than me, uh, mm-hmm. 10 years younger than me. And she... Um, So she graduated from high school in 2020 Um, and um, in her last year of school. So, yeah, you're 12. So it was a teacher initiative. Like I said, you will encounter a lot of great teachers who think outside the box and who Mm -hmm. just help students do things that really help them develop a positive sense of self. And um, they put up a show at the end of the year that was about. Being a third culture kid. Um, and interesting, um, I would say, acts within the show were one where t- teachers, I mean, students were sharing languages that they knew. And so you had so many different uh, scenarios. You had students who had learned a language on their own, like, you know, a student from Mali who's learned Japanese because he just, like he just wanted to learn Japanese like no sure. particular reason I mean he just found a connection with Japanese um the Japanese culture other students who tell you how to just learned, I don't know Italian and they're from um like they, they're from China just because they wanted to um yeah. <laughs> learn Italian and another thing also was children um speaking so they did the whole presentation on a particular theme in their Native language. So my sister presented, and they had another student who was translating in uh, French because most of the audience spoke French. So they were doing a live translation in French, in French. And so it was so powerful because all the parents were there, and just also when you'd see, like, I see my sister and her friend preparing, just the cultural exchange there. Like they had to write the text, translate it in the native language. Just talk about you know idiomatics, just different things. It was so powerful, and it just showed how broad the world is and how open the possibilities are. And yes. for example, for my mom, it was so powerful because she said, "Well, you know, 20 years ago, they told me to not speak my language to my child." Mm. And it, it took them all this while to finally acknowledge it and allow it to exist. Wow. within somewhat of the school space. And that yeah. was so powerful. That was so powerful. I mean, all the parents were so emotional, you could tell. Because to have a show like that, showcasing your students, I mean, your children's talent, but on top of it, their culture, and you know, they were sharing, you had mixed, uh, mixed race children also speaking about their experience. You had dark skin, uh, black girls were talking about their experience and all of that mixed with language, Um, a richness, it was just so powerful. And I think those type of events uh, or just opportunities are they speak volumes for everyone, not just for the students, but for parents, for the entire school community to understand what we're talking about because maybe you have not experienced it yourself, but at least with those things it opens the eyes for everyone um, within the school community.
0: Yeah, for sure. And we could talk more and more about this Mm -hmm. and there's still so much to unpack because it's such a dense subject, you know, this idea of the counter-narrative. But I want to finish this off with this before the lightning round. So (laughs) lately, we know about, you know, the banned books movement happening still, not just in the States, but also other parts of the world. Uh, We know about the fact that there's a strong allegiance to classics that are inherently racist and oppressive towards other people. We, these are things that are, that we know about. What I'm interested in talking about is the role that films and documentaries can play as a supplemental resource in this situation where books aren't being provided for students who need to see those mirrors and reflections of themselves but there's a lot of movies out there that are being created that are filling that void so most recently I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast the woman kings had a lot of controversy um, we've had controversy around the little mermaid and, and there have been other ones in the past that have had similar controversies for ridiculous reasons that I'm not going to go into right now. Uh, but I want to find out from you all your perspective on films and documentaries and the role that it can play in presenting counter-narratives to students from our historically marginalized communities, whether it's the BIPOC communities, whether we're talking LGBTQ plus communities. So yeah, what are your thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, I um- so there's a, st- a string of films of that they can watch. Um, I'd like, maybe maybe you might want to go ahead I think I'm jumping in because I've got quite, quite a list. Um, <laughs> do, you have, do you have a suggestion, Estelle, or do you want to? Wanna...
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> but what I can say in terms of their role, uh, and I can let you go ahead with the list. I mean, they're central. They are so central um, because um, you will find, well, first of all, you know, the, you, you, videos are very attractive to everyone. I mean, to young people, especially, you know, it's easier to, to ask them to watch a one hour and a half documentary than to ask them to read maybe two or three chapters of a book. So mm-hmm. it's it's already you're getting some buy-in with um, documentaries and, and movies. What is extremely important positive about movies also um is that they're allowed to build i mean they, they build in the character uh, different layers and mm-hmm. the story is is broad and the visuals also inform the students so you have a different level of um cultural um cultural imageries and that that come into play i mean you have verbal uh, but you also have visual implicit so the, the student can sort of pick upon different things um, that might not be at the center of um, of the movie. For example, myself, I I would say that I love when in movies there are a lot of things around food, scenes with foods, and scenes with people cooking, or scenes with people going to the market because I love cooking. I mean, and and I love uh, co- films from all different cultures where there's that element. I'm just. So attracted to it, and that might not be the main topic of the of the mm-hmm. of the movie, of the sub the central uh, thing that the movie is uh, discussing. So, it uh, it provides that sort of broad um, spectrum of yeah cultural knowledge, and so they're super powerful in that in that sense. And what's great is that you have a lot of opportunities to explore, like we said, the positive. Um, images the positive stories the or even the traumatic stories you can find movies that portray them in a fun way or in a in a well not <laughs> that was a little bit weird but in a way that is multifaceted, Um and that shows how well one the BIPOC of minority minoritized group reacts to some of these scenarios so not just from the you know, sad, appalling posture. But from the, yeah, complex way of being, I mean, in the face of a situation that Mm -hmm. is difficult, you can look at it and be sad, then you're optimistic, then you're... So it just provides so much wealth. Um, So they're definitely central, I would say. And we have so many opportunities now with so many streaming um, options and so many ways to... To provide those for students. So I would definitely recommend teachers jump into that. And the last thing I would say on controversy is that <clears throat> I'm always very surprised that, you know, movies, I don't know if how to say that very briefly, but there are movies where you don't get that much controversies. Uh, you for example, if you take a movie like 12 years of slave, 12 years of slave, um, sometimes you find that people are very happy and excited to show movies like this and it's so <laughs> um, i mean it tells us a lot to see that a movie like the woman yeah. king or ariel yeah. is going to get that through the controversy yeah i'll stop there
2: <laughs> that's 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 a really great point it's, yeah it's,
1: it's- I wonder why. <laughs>
2: it's uh, repeating the, the narrative that they want to, that some people are are comfortable seeing which is kind of disturbing that it would be comfortable seeing the enslavement of a marginalized person but it's uh, maybe it's something that is, is 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 hidden in the depths of their of their, of their being but i hopefully not but i do think it's very interesting how there are some narratives that have, can be repeated and repeated and that's probably what happens with repetition it, Becomes numb, the, the, the numbness. People are shaken by, by films that show a different mm. thing that ruptures their thought process of what certain people's were. So they might be like, oh, I, I expect, why is there a, a black family eating on a table? Why, why isn't there a slave situation? Or why, aren't there, why, is, why isn't the KKK burning down their house or something like this? You know, it's like, uh, it's, it, why we seeing these common tropes within, within the filming? And I think it's very important just to add that films can help kids in terms of inclusion. Not all kids are fast readers. Not all kids are good readers. Films can help those sort of readers catch up and it can help them also visualize and see um, what books can provide for them as well. And the audio books can be really useful too. And usually, let's say in terms of patonicity, Marginalized groups often have students and, uh, sorry, children who might be from backgrounds where they don't have the opportunity to read at night, where they might not have the opportunity to be read at home by their parents because of historically uh, marginalized groups will have power structures that don't offer that sometimes to them. Maybe also they might be coming from different cultures where storytelling is done in a different way. Yeah. In a beautiful way, but in a different way. Yes. Oral tradition of India, the griots of West Africa. You know, there's all these different kinds of elements. But, oh, he doesn't read enough. It's Like, well, he doesn't read 500 mm-hmm. pages of prose written in uh, 18th century English. Okay, that's not him reading enough. But look, see him do something else. See him write that poetry. See him do the spoken word. You know, he can run rings around you. But in terms of films, sorry, I was going up on one. Gogo is a happy film. It's a documentary. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's about an old lady, a 94-year-old woman. She joins her grandchildren as the oldest student at their primary school in Kenya. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it challenges uh, access to education, Kenyan culture itself, and it looks into ageism. Why can't she learn at that age? So it's a really beautiful documentary, and it shows that she takes the bravery and has the empathy to to go for it and to give it a go. Um there's a, uh, an Arabic film, uh, Saudi Arabian film called Wajia, and it's about a Saudi girl who should do anything to uh, to 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 get a green bike or something like this. And it's just an interesting film because it's shot entirely in Saudi Arabia, entirely by uh, and by a Saudi director. You listen to gender studies, and, and I think that's really good and a refreshing take because a lot of the time we have the same narrative from the Middle East, and you know they're really um, they're showing in the news a lot of things happening in Iran, for example, with the, with the hijab wearing and such like this. But uh, it's an unfortunate situation. But women are marginalized everywhere and in extreme situations too. And I think it's a good idea for us to show that women also in Wajah, for example, there's gender studies and gender issues, but it is also done from a Middle Eastern woman, directed by a Middle Eastern woman, about a Middle Eastern situation. I think it's important yeah. for us to recognize that too. Um, the West love to, to vilify the Middle East. And, uh, you know, the, it's interesting how we are already commenting on what Liz Truss is wearing, for instance, in Britain, rather than what she does. Um, mm. So I no, just want to put that out there. Um, also, there's a film that I showed my students called Feeling Through. It's a short film. It's a late night encounter between uh, two very uh, different people in uh, in New York City. A teen who's tr- quite a troubled teen. He's in need. And, but he meets a man who's deaf and blind. And he guides this deaf-blind man to the deaf-blind man's date. The deaf-blind man is going on the date. And the actor really is deaf and blind. It's a really great film called Feeling Through. Um, just two more, okay? Uh, 14 Peaks, Nothing is Impossible. It's a great documentary. It's on Netflix. It's about a Nepalese mountaineer. Uh, Nimsa Purja, I think his name is. And he climbs all the 14 peaks, all the 14 8000ers of the world. And he does it within under seven months, in fact, which is better than anyone else. And uh, all the uh, Europeans who climbed it are obviously quite sore about this. And they say, oh, it's because he used oxygen. He was assisted. But he did it because it was about national pride, because... A lot of the time people said, oh, who helped you climb Everest? Oh, my, 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 um, my, my, my Gurkha. The Gurkha never had a name. And he gave them names. He gave his whole team a name, you know, from Nepal, these guys climbing together. So it's really wow. enriching. Um, and then the last thing is an LGBTQ documentary. And it's about an Aussie rules footballer. It's on Amazon. It's a mm. girl called Taylor, Taylor Harris and it's about the challenges she faced in her career um she is um a, a blonde bombshell quote unquote and they want her to be fitting within this paradigm for like this you know aussie rules kind of crowd she's a lesbian and she's a proud one too and that mm-hmm. creates a whole lot of controversy as well right so she doesn't fit within their their sphere as well And i think that's helpful as well for some some maybe some uh, girls of european descent you know think that maybe like oh i'm not marginalized or why don't i see myself on tv it's like well kick like tyler is a really good film for that sort of thing as well so just showing a different angle to that as well um we're forgetting things like moonlight and blue is the warmest color as well i think those are beautiful films too that's my list.
0: Yeah, that and that's a really powerful list right there for sure. So thank you, Chris, for those recommendations. Uh listen, we've had a, a great conversation and we could honestly go on for hours because there's so much that we could cover on this where we just don't have the time to cover it. You know, it's just that dense. But I do awesome. want to end us off with the lightning round, and this is gonna be a super quick one. I have one question for for you all. And the way we're going to do it is it's usually a question I ask all my guests at the end. Um, If you can invite four influential figures to dinner, dead or alive, who would they be? And I'll let each of you to invite two people from your
2: party.
1: Oh. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, man.
2: I know. So I had to do that to y'all. I like the idea of someone who is like trans, trans uh, transitions between many different cultures, and someone who had basically had to be a third culture kid while while on the throne. I, I'm going to go for Cleopatra. I'm going to invite Cleopatra. Strong okay. female. She's in Egypt. She's having to deal with three Roman three Romans, uh, Mark Antony and the other two. Um, how did she use her charisma and her power to 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 create this world, that uh, safe world for her people, despite the Romans uh, uh, trying to encroach upon her people? Um, you know, and obviously, I'd like to ask her about the art and the culture of, of Egypt because it is some, it, you know, the Greeks and those guys they, they stole from Egypt uh, a lot of uh, resources and ideas. So I think she'd be quite an interesting woman to talk to. Um, yeah. You
1: got another one? <laughs> oh yeah, I'll go on. Go, um, right. go. Okay, so I'll invite um, the environmental and political activist, uh, Wangari Maathai from the Kenya. Thai, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who actually won um, the Nobel Peace Prize. Prize as well. Mm, uh, yeah. yeah, and I just wanna ask her a lot of questions because yeah, no, I mean, where, how, like, how did she thought about starting this Green Belt uh, movement? Um, and that gives me an opportunity to just say one little thing about counter-narratives, which is that they're very, I mean, it's not just about history. Like, it touches on all the fields, right? And it's also, I mean, we know how BIPOC and Indigenous community are often left out of this fight for a greener world, environmental world, although there have been the ones who were... <laughs> initially very active in preserving some of those spaces that we have today in the world and that, you know, a lot of big Mm -hmm. corporations now wants to go ahead and and preserve without them. Uh, So yeah, I I wanted to just learn more about how she just started this green belt movement um, in Africa. So that would be my first person.
2: Oh, maybe I should try and think of someone now as well. I'm just going from my brain, I don't want to pick someone typical. Maybe pick someone like that. I'm going to invite the Dalai Lama, right? The Dalai Lama seems to have a very, very good relationship with Desmond Tutu as well. They they got on very mm-hmm. well, and uh, I think they're a part of a, a collective group of spiritualists. And I just find it very interesting how he was so able to keep such a pure spirit and be so stoic and, uh, and be so kind and warm with a bunch of different people. I, you know, that's, that, mm-hmm. that takes a lot of effort. And I'm not sure that many people would have um, anything bad to say against him. Um, he, he was being you know marginalized by, by a dominant power. Um, how did he handle that as a, as a spiritual leader, as a, as a, as a diplomat? Um, what is, what does he think about people who, who don't have faith? Um, you know, um what are he, what what does his teachings tell the world? Um how does how does his la- how does his access to multiple languages help him know more about the world? I just think he'd be a great, great guy. And I think he, he looks like he's gonna be really funny. I've always seen him he was like a big smile on his face, so I think that would be a good guy. Yeah.
1: All right. Nice one. And so to counterbalance that, uh, I'm going to invite as a fourth guest, um, Tomas Sankara. So Tomas Sankara from Burkina Faso, uh, yeah. because he's a military, I mean, he's a military man, you know, and he was the president of Burkina Faso. But that is, when we talk about essentializing, uh, being from the military was just one aspect of who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I mean, what he did for Burkina Faso in terms of just culture is extraordinary, and it Mm. goes beyond what people would think somebody who's in the military, a soldier, would do. Mm. I mean, he invested in the arts, in the film, um, in in just everything related to culture, like national ballet. He created this, I mean, he founded this... um, um, film festival that is still happening in Burkina Faso. And that is one of the best film festival in uh, West Africa, which is the FESPACO. And, um, mm. and he put forward a cloth, traditional cloth from Burkina Faso made with, um, in cotton called Faso d'Anfani. And today it is still like part of the pride of uh, Burkina Faso. And it, it's, it's just gained recognition all throughout like West Africa. I mean, he's, he was an, a feminist, he was so many things and, you know, he died so young at 37 years old. He only was yeah. in power for four years. Yeah. And in those four years, what he did, I guess still positively alive today. Uh, mm-hmm. And I just want to, yeah, I want him to chip in and, and just enhance our knowledge.
2: Yeah, it'd be interesting talking to him and the Dalai Lama about like, like exactly. and uh, revolutionism, uh, revolutionary uh, Marxism yeah. and such. And you know, and also he's thirty three, wasn't he? Like when he came into, I think he was in his early thirties.
1: Yeah, was, exactly. When he
2: was, imagine being thirty three and being like president oh, of Burkina Faso. Uh, like, how does it, How do you manage that? Incredible physical, guy. Yeah. yeah. In a
1: time yeah. of yeah neo colonialism and all of yeah
2: that. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. But ooh, that, brilliant, that's, entertaining. Yeah, that's
0: a powerful yeah, that, power <laughs> <A real> table. Power <laughs> y'all, 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 did a good job with this one.
1: No, thank you. <laughs> yeah,
0: y'all did a good job with this one. Well, listen, uh, yeah, no problem. But Chris and Estelle, thank you so much for coming on. As always, it's always great to to connect with with the both of you. Um, but of course, I want to give you all an opportunity to just share how people can connect with you on social media. Um, I know uh Estelle, if you want to shout out Tissy, this is a good chance to shout out Tissy. Um okay. and then Chris, whatever you're doing, you know, feel free to share what's going on with you or what's, or what's coming up. <laughs>
1: okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So um, yeah. So I'm. Um, I founded a consultancy called TC. So that's what I do. Uh, that's how I'm involved in education. So it's a consultancy in education for social change. Because uh, yes, uh, Thomas Sankara inspired me a lot when I was a teenager, uh, and it still inspires me. So I'm a bit of a revolutionary. <laughs> um, so you can find. Uh, TC, yeah, you can go to tcconsulting.com. I think that's, like, the easiest way to, to get access to me. And then on LinkedIn, just type my name, Estelle Bounia I accept everyone. <laughs> and, yeah, that those are the main handles, I would say.
2: All right. And Chris? Okay, so for me, um, I'm Chris Clyde Green on all handles. So from LinkedIn to uh, Twitter, Chris Clyde Green. I will be actually doing a talk at the IB conference in The Hague, a breakout session, in fact, on how we can uh, incorporate EDI strategies within the literature classroom. How can we bring the world to our classroom? So that's coming up on uh, the first week of October, I believe. So October on Saturday, actually, on Saturday, I got the date correct, just in case anyone is interested in coming along. That will be on Saturday, the 8th of October in The Hague at the IB conference. I'm not sure which room, uh, but that mm-hmm. should be quite entertaining. Um, I'm also going to be joining uh, the Anti-Discrimination Task Force for International Schools uh, the 15th of October at uh, the wonderful International School of Geneva here in Switzerland. We're bringing a host of schools from a- around the lake and the Swiss region. And we're going to be talking about how we can unify schools to help uh, tackle anti discrimination and uh, anti racism and EDI strategies. Uh, so that's what I'm currently doing for the next month. I look forward to writing a bit more on this concept. I look forward to podcasting a bit more. And I found this to be such a wonderful and enjoyable experience. So thank you so much, Estelle. And thank you, Kwame, as well. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, can I, Kwame, just say thank yes. you as well? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and I also wanted to add that um, TC is working with um, um, the ta- well, some of the schools and organizations yes. call- with the task force. Uh, yes. So we are working with EcoLind, myself, and uh, Estelle Hughes, who's my twin uh, from another mother, and from just yeah. <laughs> my older sister and my twin. Uh, but no, we've been collaborating so um, on teacher professional development in the realm of, you know, that inclusion through diversity, equity, and anti-racism. So that's what we offer to different schools. And um, that's how we somehow involved in the task force as well. Uh, and we're also working on a, on a book. Definitely that's, we, we understanding that, you know, to provide counter narratives and to provide that, those resources it's important for us to be part of the, um, of, of the movement by writing, by creating. Um, um, yeah, I didn't say much about that. I mean, I'm also a singer and a musician, so I'm also bringing some, so
2: much. So yeah. much.
1: <laughs>
2: Renaissance <laughs> women, yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. But yeah,
1: using all these different outlets to just, yeah, keep up the the, the movement going. Yeah, it's, wow. it's our time. And thank you yeah. so much, Kwame, yeah. for creating the space for the unsung heroes it's so cool yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: I think yeah it's really it's really important I think that um, you should we should think about that don't ask our students or students of bi uh, bipoc to, to not be a wallflower but to also not have to be the best of the best or seem mm. to be lazy you know in comments from teachers like that and at times try not to navigate away, away from your true self. You don't always need to show your full self if you don't want to, yeah. in a sense. You know, you can, yeah. and you you don't know yourself yet as well. Discover yourself mm. and enjoy that ride as well. Don't let anyone yeah. else try and drive you towards a certain a certain category or pigeonhole. Yeah, yeah. there you go.
0: Exactly. And that's that's a perfect way to to end that right there with that word. So, um, Chris and Estelle. We're gonna to have to do this again another time. But uh um,
1: yes.
0: I'm, I'm wishing the both of you a great rest of the day. And you know, you already know we're gonna connect soon. So yeah. thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Kwame. Right. Thank you, identity no
0: talk. Bye, yes. Chris. Thanks. Bye-bye. All See right. you soon. Bye y'all. All, All right. right, y'all. So we're about to end another episode of my Danes Talk for Educators Live. And as always. Wish you all good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. We're going to do this again another time. Peace out, y'all. Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, apple podcast and all other streaming platforms we're always striving to provide you with quality content so if you love what you heard tonight please leave us a review on apple podcast and to check out the video episodes of the podcast you can visit our website at www.identitytalkforeducators.com thank you and have a great day